out of freeze and what's available to them relationally, sexually in that safer place. Welcome back to another episode. I am very pleased to have with me Becky Carter, who is a trauma and somatic therapist. And um, today we're talking about overcoming sexual shame. And we will be discussing what that means in depth and kind of welcoming all parts of ourselves to become sort of more whole and expressed and um, yeah. Whole is a word that I keep, I notice I keep coming back to with my clients. So, um, yeah. So to start, I would just love to hear a little bit, a little bit about your own journey in becoming a trauma informed therapist, a somatic therapist, what brought you to this? I know that that's probably a long answer, but I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you became who you are. Yes, definitely. And thanks for having me, Melanie. I, I would say that it has been an interesting journey. I've been a therapist uh, for over 20 years now, and I came into the therapy world basically being thrown into a job with primarily 95%, I'd say, of my caseload being trauma survivors with no training. And my very first client that I sat down with as an intern was actually a male survivor of sexual trauma and physical trauma. And he is somebody that followed me through my internship and all the way through my job that I ended up, I ended up being hired at the place that I was interning. Um, This was in Chicago. And, and so he was the first client I started with there and the last client I ended with before I moved on to my next job. And it's interesting because I I bring up that story whenever I talk about working with sexual trauma and specifically working with male survivors of sexual trauma, because I do think that, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I was really going on instincts at that time. I was going on a passion for the work and instincts and trying to just create a, a really safe space for a vulnerable population. And uh, for and and for some reason, having a knack for helping men find their voice, coming out of shame, and so I, I always remembered that client. And I think throughout my whole career, I've been seeking that experience, right? And I've been seeking. I've worked with a lot of uh, survivors of sexual trauma for a great deal of time, primarily women, and. And then slowly, as I started getting more training, doing training in somatic experiencing, doing uh, training and working with dissociative identity disorder, which stems from, you know, complex compound early childhood trauma, and also doing some work with um, looking at developmental trauma and attachment wounds as a result of trauma. I think those vulnerable populations came, just started to come in. 
And one of them being men, male survivors of childhood sexual abuse, sexual assault. And, and, and I think, you know, that men are looking for a place where they can really have a different experience of being heard, being validated, uh, having a place to talk about the complexities of experiencing sexual violation and the somatic sexual impact of that. Um, because there's just aren't enough spaces uh, for survivors to feel like they can do that. Yeah. Thanks for, for speaking of that. And I, I know in my own experience working with a lot of men, there's also the piece of not everyone realizes that this was a formative experience. I've, I've worked with several clients where sometimes it's even like, oh yeah. And this other thing happened, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is like, oh, that was, that's very significant. What you're, yes. what you're describing or say it was a, it was, well, it only happened once or whatever it was, but it was, it was formative, especially when you're young, when it's, when it's happening, when you're young, you know, 12, eight, six, nine there, your brain is still developing. Your limbic system is still developing. That's all still, still happening. And I think that because of the inherent homophobia in our culture, I think there's a lot of confusion for men who are, who receive unwanted sexual touch from other men or boys, right? Where, where it's a same sex assault situation or unwanted sexual touch, whatever it is that layers on top of, well, does that mean that I'm gay? Does that mean, what does this mean about my sexual identity? And so, yeah, I'd be curious to hear sort of from your experience working with, with men like that, um, how much does that factor in? Because I know for, for the men I work with, that's a big part of what the hell happened? Like, how do I make sense of this? What does this mean about me? Yes. Yeah. I, I think you're speaking to a lot of the complexities, right. And why it takes such a, it also, it also like can take quite a bit of time before men can disclose and they can come forward and share some experience during their childhood that felt violating sexually felt like it crossed some sort of boundary and to be able to start to voice the pieces that um, they're confused about the pieces that they might be having some nightmares about or questioning themselves around. And that for men, I think, unfortunately, what can happen is that they have experiences with some sort of sexual contact at an early age violating contact, pressure to have some sort of sexual contact, unwanted touch. And there's this assumption that it is some kind of rite of passage or some type of initiation and that they're supposed to be okay with it. And boy, you know, I've heard this from a lot of the men I work with that, oh, you know, this assumption that what they went through was kind of cool and that somehow, you know, that um, they should be grateful for being able to come into their sexuality younger like, you know, oh, you had something special about you, right? When there's embedded this horrible, overwhelming sense of something was not right about that. Something was wrong. And this embodied experience of, I didn't want that, you know, that shows up as sexual fears, sexual shame, sexual dysfunction, right? A, A literal resistance of the body to come into sexual experiences in a non, uh, I guess, not from threat response, right? So not out of fight, not out of fight and not um, out of freeze or appease. And how 
to help men really figure out what is it they experience that uh, started to shift their sense of self and who mm-hmm. they are as sexual beings and their embodied experience of sexual, their own sexuality and the decisions they're making around that. And so, and, and then I also think there's this piece of, yes, that there's, you know, so much of sexual trauma occurs within families. So it's often siblings. Um, there is not a lot of research or not a lot written about experiencing sexual trauma from a mother figure or a female um, caretaker and the complexities that creates in terms of relationships that your first sexual experience started maybe as something that uh, was nurturing, you know, at the beginning and then started to move into something that started to feel scary or uncomfortable or you know, violating. And so, you know, there's, so I think it's, it's, it's our job as therapists, especially as women, as we're talking to men, even if they haven't disclosed yet that there might be some sexual trauma, to really sense into, as they're talking about relationship experiences, their sense of sexual self, really giving a, a opening a wide net and a wide container um, for talking about things that might feel a little bit more shame inducing. And and even starting to be curious and wonder for our clients how many of the experiences they've had felt safe to them, felt volitional to them, even though someone in their life might have told them, hey, that's cool. You got to make out with so-and-so. Well, that's not what it was about. That was unwanted, right? And, and can we start to help men get curious about what they wanted, what they didn't want sexually in their pasts? And uh, and, and help them start to understand the embodiment of, of it, the embodied impact of unwanted sexual touch. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I've definitely had conversations similar to that, especially I think when it was a woman or a girl, a female figure of some kind in in childhood. You know, like you said, there can be, well, oh, well, you were so lucky you got, you got to have sex with so-and-so, or you got to get a blowjob in that way. When really the felt experience was, ugh, like this doesn't, it feels icky. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like I'm in control. It doesn't feel like I have power, even though we don't have the language for that. It just, mm-hmm. something feels wrong and something feels off. And then it's very confusing when it's sort of well, you should feel, <laughs> you should feel grateful. You should feel good about it when you you don't feel good about it. And that I think is a great example of our experiences in the world and then talking about them. There, there's not always that bridge of having someone else feel what you felt, right? You're explaining a thing that happened to you, but you you're trying to get across the feeling of ickiness or it's something's crawling up my spine, but the other person is, doesn't get it. And, you know, I think that there are many examples of that in the world of just trying to explain something and feeling like I'm not, I'm not getting it across. And I I think that's another sort of segue to who you tell and how they respond really matters. And I've noticed that some clients, many clients have never told anyone Mm-hmm. Or they've tried to tell someone once and it went poorly and then they didn't talk about it for 15 years because it's such a vulnerable thing. It's such a vulnerable thing to, to offer, to, to share. 
And if it's not held in that moment, which often it's not, if you're telling a peer as a teenager, let's say, you know, it's like that person's ill-equipped. They don't really have a clue, you know, but whatever it is, that's such a precious thing. And if it's not received, it, it can, you know, that in itself can also be traumatic of having this, this secret. Cause often it's a secret, right? It's a secret that yes. we're holding, not have that respected, cherished, honored, held is, is very, very, very difficult, can feel extremely scary and revealing and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to kind of highlight that. I've heard that as well. Well, well, you should feel lucky or you should, you know, or even if it's not someone else, it's like, I should, I should feel lucky because mm-hmm. of this, you know, strange culture <laughs> that we live in of the assumption that men always want sex are always down for sex are always ready for sex it's, it's permeates everything. And so if you're a boy growing into a man, you think, well, I should have enjoyed that. Or I should have, I'm so lucky. I fill in the blank when really it's like, no, it felt bad and wrong. And your system was flooded and you, and you froze and you feel so ashamed of that freeze. So yeah. Can you speak a little bit about Mm -hmm. that part about the freeze and what it's been like for you working with clients who are kind of coming out of that freeze in sharing with you. And then they're, they're, felt experience of coming out of freeze. Oh, you bet. You bet. And, and so I kind of going back to what you were talking about disclosure, disclosing and uh, disclosure experiences is one of the things I found is that whether it's in groups that I'm doing with uh, survivors or with uh, individuals that a lot of the time we spend at the front end is talking about re-traumatizing uh, painful, shaming disclosure experiences, and that, and starting to allow for a new experience of being heard and witnessed uh, and supported around the the what was traumatizing, what shouldn't have happened that did, and really naming that, and and what it's like for 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 men to be really validated with their experience and. And the fear that they felt in that moment from someone when they've been in previous therapeutic relationships and that hasn't happened. And so, so not only I think are, are, are men coming out of freeze because there's just not enough, I don't know, I just, there's just not enough recognition and good services for them out there. But I also think they're trying to come out of freeze because they've tried to talk to people in the past. Yes, whether it's disclosing to family or friends. And if the secrets being kind of managed and maintained and held within the family and that, yeah, that can also happen within the context of the therapeutic relationship that therapists might kind of work around the therapeutic material or minimize or maybe not intentionally, but create more shame um, with disclosure. And so I think what happens from that is that just more freeze gets embodied, right? There's more constriction there's more bracing in the nervousness system. There's less access to voice, right? Less access to finding no, right? To finding that was not okay and, and, and being able to verbalize that, um, which I think is why we see so many medical issues and um, a lot of tension, back pain, body pain. Uh, a lot of men come into my office and their, their bodies are just experiencing chronic fatigue and chronic pain because of the holding of the freeze and the 
this kind of forced appeasing and disconnecting with the realities of the trauma experience, right? And so, and so appease is what I think is really a combination of the flight response and the freeze response combined. That we're frozen, something doesn't feel good, but we feel like we just have to say whatever that person wants to hear, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a parent, whether it's, you know, whoever might be minimizing or, you know, creating some harm or some damage, um, that we're freezing because we're overwhelmed, we're not being, we're being shamed, but yet we want to get out, right? We want to be out of the, the relationship, we want to be out of the room, we want to be out from underneath, right? We want to be out of the therapy room if we're not feeling heard. And so the work is how do you help men realize and find out and explore how they have in an embodied way held the trauma and what their body feels like when it's holding less trauma, when it's out of freeze and what's available to them relationally, sexually in that safer place. Yeah. I think this is a good time to come back to your very first client that you mentioned Mm -hmm. that followed you throughout your practice. I'm wondering if you can kind of give a little bit of a, an arc to that, to that story. Cause I imagine that he made progress and that things changed for him as he did that. And can you say a little about his, I mean, without violating confidentiality, but about his arc of growth that you would yeah, definitely. I I think what for him it was for the first so his uh, uh, perpetrator was actually a woman. It was his mother. And you know, he experienced quite a bit of torture sexually and physically. And so to come into a room with another woman who's supposed to be there in some sort of capacity of caretaking, of helping, of listening was overwhelming and what we came into awareness of, and I, I started to realize, was that he was really severely dissociated, right? Uh, and that uh, to start to unpack what he had disconnected from to survive, right? To uh, help him find his voice around things that have been harmful and the way that it's impacted in his impacted him as an ongoing relationships, even his relationship and trying to get support from me. And helping him find his voice and really land and settle into and embody those moments when he experienced something different, you know, a a supportive tone from me, a empathic gaze from me, a a witnessing of the horror he'd been through without uh, me shutting down, right? With me staying attuned, without without me going into freeze, uh, and. And, and for him to slowly start to get a sense of being more embodied while, while telling the story of what he went through and the horrors of what he went through, which is really, to me, the, the whole element of coming out of shame. It's being embodied with your trauma without overwhelm and shutdown, right? And in the presence of a supportive and witnessing other. And, and he's, a, you know, he's an example of probably one of my most, I would say, uh, longer term severe uh, sexual trauma situations. I have clients who have a similar uh, sense of freeze, a similar sense of shame, and uh, and they're describing what would on maybe the trauma continuing look to be in a very different place. Right? It may not seem as severe, 
on the outside. It may not seem as violating. Maybe there was no penetration for the trauma, but there was unwanted sexual contact. And it can look very similar in terms of the embedded shame uh, that starts to show up and create barriers uh, for living a sexually fulfilling, connected, confident life. So, um, so, so my earlier client, you know, he's, he's a success story in that he was probably the only long-term uh, client I had that had that level of severity and was able to stay in the process and flex those muscles of take, taking risks to be heard and to be seen and, and validated. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you, if you can sort of outline a few of the possible effects um, because I think that, you know, there, it, like you said, it can show up, it shows up in the body. It does show up in the body and, and it's not always conscious, right? I guess that's another thing that's, that's happening here is it, a man might not be consciously aware of being a trauma survivor, but he knows he's got back pain. He knows he's locked up and he knows he's got some stuff around sex, right? Mm -hmm. Sex has never been felt easy for Mm -hmm. him. Um, Can you, can you talk about a a few of the, a few of the things that are common that happen when, yeah, when trauma is part of your past and it hasn't been integrated yet? You bet. I I, I think, and I'm kind of speaking from my experience and in my caseload and what seems to also be, you know, kind of supported in, in, in research. And that is that there can be quite a bit of sexual avoidance. You know, there's this assumption, this hor- horrific assumption that men want sex all the time. Right. And um, and so having that pressure along with being sexually fearful. Right. And it is it, just overwhelming. Right. So there's there's a reflexive you know, reaction to want to stay away from anything sexual. And then the shame from thinking there's something wrong because not only do I want to stay away from it, but I don't want to engage in it and I don't want to engage in it over and over and over again. So, so uh, I think some of the ways that it's shown up in my offices is, is men being very fearful of engaging in sexual relations, especially things that might uh, mimic or mirror the trauma that they experienced. It might be having sexual relations, but avoiding communicating what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what might make them feel a little bit triggered or uncomfortable. Uh, It might just show up as a kind of like a resistance in the body, a withholding in the body, right? Of and abracing in the body with regards to, you know, ejaculation, with regards to, you know, accessing arousal, right? And um, it even just shows up, I think, uh, in other areas of intimacy, like, you know, anything that would ideally create passion in somebody or excitement. If you listen to a really good song, or if you go to see a movie, and that there's just overall a dissociation from affect, from feeling, vulnerable feelings, right? you know, like sadness or, um, and even positive sadness, right? You know, tears of joy, that there is a disconnect from that feeling and uh, the body sensation connected with it. I think it also can look like sexual dysfunction in terms of difficulty maintaining arousal, 
finding arousal, um, premature ejaculation or delayed ejaculation. It can look like um, shutting down or dissociating in the midst of certain sexual activities, whether receiving something sexually or giving something sexually. Uh, it may be show up as having a sexual experience and not remembering parts of it or feeling disconnected from parts of your body during sex, right? Um, like they just don't feel like, um, you know, if they are receiving oral sex, they don't, they're not actually feeling the impact of that on the penis during sex. They've dissociated that emotion, that um, physiological effect. So, so it really tends to show up as to me as a lot of those dissociative elements. And then the fight response can show up, you know, the wanting to push away during sex or, or um, the feeling of shutting down and collapsing underneath the idea of something sexual and going into freeze or just really, um, you know, kind of it shows up in the feet a little bit of restlessness when it comes to sexual activity, the desire to flee and get out, right? Or appeasing and saying, you know, men saying that they're comfortable trying new sexual things um, uh, with their partners that they really aren't comfortable trying just to meet that person's need because that is what happened during trauma. Yeah, that, or if you're getting triggered listening to this podcast, <laughs> I mean, for example, the, yeah. the um you know, what you said about the restless feet and just the feeling of wanting to get away and, um, the muted quality that I remember mm -hmm. that I definitely saw that when I was working more heavily with specifically with survivors of sexual abuse in, on the East coast was there was a muted quality or when you, you know, you keep saying the word dissociating. I think a lot of people don't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. And from, in my experience, it's a blankness. It feels like a blankness when I'm interacting with someone that I, I think might be dissociating. It feels like you're physically there, but you're not really there. And it's a very strange feeling because it's sort of like, are you, are you with me? You know, and mm -hmm. therapists talk about affect when Becky's using the word affect it just means emotional expression and mm -hmm. um, feeling emotional expression and yes. feeling. And so it, it to me dissociation when I'm interacting with someone like that feels like a blankness and a muted quality of there's nothing really happening and it can yeah. feel strange. Like I don't, I don't really know what to do right yes. now. I'm not really sure where you are. And uh, I think that, that sometimes it's, it's easy to miss, I guess is what I'm trying to say too, mm -hmm. that when you're, you know, because a lot of your men have partners, a lot of your men are in relationships. This is not just something that affects single people. And sometimes a partner might not notice mm -hmm. in the moment or even in something like appease, because if your partner's saying yes to something, you might think that it's a real yes. Yeah. And it takes a long time to find, to find your voice and to, to help someone find their voice. And I'm, I'm just yeah wondering if you can speak a little bit to that in terms of mm -hmm men that are partnered that are coming to you for what are they coming to you for? Is it like, I, yeah. you know, I want a better sex life with my wife or we might get divorced because of this, you know, this has become mm -hmm. a relationship in our relationship and you know, how does that work in terms of yes. do a lot have, a, have, because, and also not everyone is a survivor of sexual trauma, right. But it's a, it's more people than we think it's more men mm -hmm. than we think. So 
specifically more women than we think as well, but this is sort of focused on men, you know, have you found that a certain percentage didn't remember until your work with, with him? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so often what can happen is there is, you know, there's been a cluster of clients that have come to me specifically for the treatment of sexual trauma. And then there's a whole other cluster of clients that comes because they're struggling in relationships. Um, they are struggling with issues of anger or betrayal or, um, or shame or depression, or they have a panic disorder or, you know, so there's all, or substance abuse, you know, so that there, there's all these kind of, there's a, I guess a, a lot of different other conditions and challenges and ways in which sexual trauma survivors can present that aren't specifically rated related to them saying, I experienced sexual trauma, right? There's all these other things that are happening in their lives that are, have showed up because they've tried to regulate from sexual trauma, take care of themselves, self-soothe, um, control things that feel out of control in their lives. And, and so, so, and, and kind of going back to the dissociation piece, it's, it's everything that sexual trauma survivors do to avoid having to confront, you know, the, the, everything that they went through with regards to the trauma. So, you know, that, that when we think about processing painful things, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. And when our body and our minds become overwhelmed with something, we, we check out, we check out as a way to cope or we disconnect from feeling right. Physiological feeling. We disconnect from emotions. We disconnect from sensations. We disconnect from relationships, right. And we, and we hold on and we store and we repress to cope, right. Cause that feels safer. Right. Um, we can almost disconnect from our own bodies and feel like we're kind of wandering around looking down at ourselves. Right. A lot of men talk about this experience of feeling that they're walking alongside themselves or hovering over themselves during relation, relational experiences or sexual experiences. And that, that it's helping them figure out what's, what's missing, right? What, what isn't in association right now that should be. And, 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 and the relationship building that takes time to get to that point where they can start to discover that. And then, and then I think what I've noticed is that for a lot of men, because of the shame, because of the dissociation, the repression, societal expectations, they usually aren't disclosing until they're in their 30s, maybe late 20s, 30s, or 40s. And it may be because they were triggered, maybe they had children and their children are coming to be the age that they were when they were um, sexually abused. Maybe they are finally in what feels like a safer relationship with a partner. And because it feels safer, they feel a little bit more freedom to talk about harder stuff. So memories start to surface, right? Um, also, I find that uh, male survivors can kind of come into trauma when they the person who traumatized them passes or who perpetrated the trauma passes or dies. Um, they'll start kind of reassessing and thinking about all the things they experienced. So, uh, you know, or it's just they're reading something or smell something or hear something. Um, I, I have some survivors that have come into awareness of their trauma because they're watching the news and hear somebody else's story or they're talking to a friend. Right. 
So, um, but repression is actually quite a normal part of it, right? The shame is a normal part of it. The disconnect and dissociating from painful things or feelings is a very normal part of it. And the anger is very normal. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the anger or the, the sort of stages of, because anger isn't always in my experience, the first emotion Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. arises, but it's almost always one of them. And um, yeah, I'm curious if there, if you've noticed a sort of arc of, okay, the repressed memory has come up. I'm shocked. There's this sort of element of shock. What's the kind of arc all the way into integration? Yes. Well, I think this is what's a little bit different in in my work with men that when, when I work with women and who have survived sexual trauma, it's often hard for them to access the anger and easier than for, for them to access the shame and vulnerability. Right. Um, For men, I think the anger has been protective and can often be something that comes into the room a little bit earlier. And so it's, it's understanding the source of the anger. You know, um, I'm always, when I'm in the community talking about this topic, it's about, you know, how do we seek to understand anger in men and not over pathologize it or, you know, really condemn man, men for being angry. Right. And so I think it's leaving a lot of space for the anger to hear what else is surfacing around that, what other feelings are there. There's a lot of uh, grief in trauma. So the idea that, that men can go through grief cycles with regards to coming into awareness of abuse, they can go through denial. It didn't happen. Or maybe it wasn't so bad, right? Or kind of the shame-based denial. Maybe I deserved it. Maybe I did something that, you know, you know made it happen. Uh, so there's the denial, there's the bargaining. Well, maybe if I do A, B, C, or D, you know, I won't have to think about it anymore. Maybe if I, you know, distract myself or drink a lot, you know, I, I can kind of suppress myself of that memory. And then, yes, there's the sadness that comes with it, which I think is a really tough one for men to find space to process through you know, and there's a lot of anger. And then there's moments where there might be a sense of accepting what's happened and the impact. But then you can go back through those stages of traumatic grief again, where you can go right back to the denial, right? And, but what I, what I do like to talk to men about is uh, the idea that anger can, you know, if, if processed um, in a healthy way, be quite a mobilizer, right? And it can help you come out of freeze, right? If you can find some fight, right? If you can move through the things that didn't get to happen when you were feeling held down or oppressed, right? You know, the charge in your muscles, right? You know, and um, to push through literally with your hands. I have some men who will push against the wall just to re-engage the fight response in their arms in a safe way because they didn't feel that they could fight when they were being traumatized. So probably went on a little bit more around that <laughs> than you might have asked for, but no, that was great. I I appreciate the the specificity of you know how how to do this because I mm-hmm. do think that you know a lot of the clients I work with they might be aware that it might be an issue, uh, but they really don't know 
what to do about it or how to, how to do it. And I think that's the role and the purpose of mentorship, whether that's therapy or coaching or whatever it is, is you don't have to do it alone. And there are people who've been through it and who can hold you. And there are groups and spaces that, you know, this is an experience that millions of people have millions of people all over the globe. And it is more than possible to move through it and to integrate Mm -hmm. and to actually, yeah, face what happened and have it be part of your story, but not define you as an identity and not live in the cells of your body. I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. the, the, the salient part is the way it's showing up is, is usually through the body, whether that's pain or, you know, in my case, a lot of my clients of old, not necessarily current clients, but they were having nightmares. They had, they had nightmares or they had recurring chronic pain Mm -hmm. such that they couldn't hold down a job. And it was like, this is, this is debilitating. I don't, I don't have a lot of those kinds of clients anymore, but not being able to, to feel like I'm able to date the people I want. I'm able to go after the people I want. That Mm -hmm. is its own form of debilitation. Or I feel like I always get friend zoned, or I feel like I can't, um, I can't have sex with my partner in the way that Mm -hmm. I want to, or express myself or all of that is, is, can be a way that it's showing up. And it's all, it's all possible to have, to, to integrate right? It's not, it's not like it has to be this way forever. And the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, this, this is similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar for folks that have been through domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. A lot of my clients don't have sexual trauma, but they have childhood trauma. They've Mm -hmm. been through some really difficult shit, whether that's neglect or, or, or actual physical abuse or sexual abuse, people go through a lot of stuff and it tends to show up, as you said, relationally it shows up in your relationships it shows up in your romantic relationships first and foremost and then Mm -hmm. friendships and all the rest of it but that's you know it's all connected so yeah I'm wondering if you can um speak a little bit to what you've seen as men integrate and do Mm. kind of access the grief and all the rest of it what is what does resolution look like what does it feel like what what is it like for your clients Cause I assume that at some point, some of them terminate therapy and they feel like mm-hmm. I can have a relationship. <laughs> you know, yeah. I feel, I feel good. I feel complete. Yeah. I it's not like life is perfect, but can you speak a little bit to that of the, you bet, you yeah. bet. Yeah. And I, and I, I like the idea of using these words like integration and I, I like to say moments of resolution, right? I think that, you know, uh, you know, trauma, it does get absorbed in our cells and, and, and it absorbed in our bodies and um, kind of in our psyche. Right. And that, so, so much of the work that I try to encourage is an awareness of impact and how, even though we can come to a point of healing and feeling less burdened by trauma, that sometimes it, we can still just get surprised by how our nervous system might react in a certain situation. So it's the idea of knowing that we, we may always be impacted to some extent, but our capacity to ground within that, um, find more regulation and breath within it to stay in relationship while being impacted. That if, if we start to feel like we can have more moments 
of that, then it has less power of us over us. It's it's not defining us as much that we can kind of reconfigure ourselves, integrate trauma in a way that is 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 less oppressive of an experience. And I think, you know, so much of that is really about coming out of the shame. It's saying that this happened to me. This was not okay, right? It had this impact, right? To be able to, instead of internalizing the anger, holding perpetrators accountable, you know, and and, and directing the anger where it belongs, and that's in on the person that caused us harm or um, or violated us, right? And yes, that goes for all forms of abuse. And 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 what's super powerful, I think, especially for men because they don't often feel like they have uh, venues to talk about this with other men is to hear another man saying that was not okay. What happened to you or what happened to me? Right. And, and it's not acceptable. And not only do I see you in that feeling, but I'm speaking to you and you're seeing me and it's that being supported by other survivors, I say is probably been the most powerful piece of the work is having group is having group work. And that, and, and that really, I think helps with that integration. I am not alone. I am not alone. And I can talk about this and I can still be in my strength. I can still feel my masculinity, whatever we feel that is for us in the way I want to feel it. I can still decline or, you know, invite in sexual relations in the way I want them. And, um, and I can be confused about who I am as a sexual being from trauma and know that other men feel that too, right? And that, that there's a sense of agency that starts to develop and a sense of voice and, and, know, and, and that knowing when you're in a piece, knowing when you're in freeze and why, you know, and, and, and helping yourself um, um, start to become more mobilized. Yes. Yeah, I like that idea of mobilized it's it's sort of like I've worked with clients where it feels like when you have an avatar in a video game that's just standing there not Mm -hmm. doing anything just standing and then watching the growth and feeling oh he's moving he's doing things in his video game world he's you know (laughs) he's moving around jumping he's you know and maybe he's getting hurt sometimes but there's Mm -hmm. action there's life there's you know movement through the body and I think that's one of the most gratifying things of watching. Yeah. Watching a man grow and watching him and thrive. We're talking about, right. Going from this, this, the the true essence of surviving to thriving and, and not living every day and, and, and going through every interaction terrified that you're going to lose your sense of self or die. Right. And that when you can start to feel like, wow, I can go through a, B, C, and D, and I still feel relatively intact. Mm-hmm. I still feel like I have, or I have resources to help myself when I don't feel that way. When I don't feel like I have a sense of agency or I don't, I feel overpowered by something. Right. And that, and, and then when all of a sudden you just, you know, you hear men saying, I wasn't scared all day. I didn't have nightmares for, you know, a few weeks or I, 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 Instead of seeing them come into the office with their shoulders drooped and their head down and not making eye contact, right? Um, or that they start to, you know, sit up a little straighter, right? They reveal their core, right? And they're, you know, and they and they 
they look up and they make that eye contact and all of a sudden you hear their voice in a different way than you've heard it before. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the body shifts. Yeah. Often deeper. Much oh, deeper. Much that's a deeper. Different register than when we started. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Really amazing what happens when the throat is not constricted, you know, due to shame. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. I think as we sort of start to wrap here, I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit if a man has listened to this and feels like, oh yeah, maybe there's some stuff for me to work out here, uh, where he can go to work with you. Also, if you know of any other resources, particularly around group, group Mm -hmm. things, I have a suggestion as well. But um, if a man kind of wants to get started or move in this direction, you know, how can he find you and how can he find others? Yes. Yes. So, so to find me, I am at, um, Becky Carter, lcpc.com and uh, it's Becky with a Y. And also I, I do some work with men healing and which is a website for male survivors, one in six, which is another website site and male survivor.org. All of those have links to groups in the communities and in different states. And they also have some online support groups for men. Uh, They also just have a lot of really interesting kind of facts, articles, and things to help, uh, you know, if if you're not ready to take that step to go right into counseling or to processing, process something you think you um, might need some support with, they can kind of just give you a little bit of a glimpse of what a variety of male survivor stories look like. So you might not feel so alone and like you can take that next step. And um, my, what I always say though, is really, really, really look for someone who is trauma trained, where the bulk of what they advertise in their practice is working with trauma survivors. And if they say they have a specialty in working with men, that's even better because I've a lot, a lot of men who have gone to folks who have never worked with a male survivor and a lot can get missed. A lot can get missed. That's really so good. I'm pretty protective of, of yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would I would echo that and and make sure that you you trust <laughs> make sure you trust the person you're working with. Make sure you like yeah. the person you're working with. I know a lot of people have this sense of well, I should because this person's trained or no, the, the therapeutic relationship, you know, whether it's a facilitator of a group or whoever is holding the space, mm-hmm. you know, your body will tell you whether mm-hmm. you feel safe in that space and, and trust that feeling more than certification credentials, all of the rest of all of yes. the, all the rest of the things. It's really important. Um, yeah. I was also going to mention one in six. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. That's if you are interested, they have really good stuff and their website is the number one in the number six, one in six.org, one number in six.org. I'll also put it in the show notes, but I, they, I just, I have a lot of respect for them and the work that they oh. do. I, I definitely do want to echo, echo what you said about groups, hearing other people's stories, being in an environment because yes. one-on-one, one-on-one work is very sacred and mm-hmm. group work is transformational. Just it's transformational. It's transformational. So I think yeah. there's a place for both of those. And there's, I've just seen, I've seen remarkable. Yeah. I've just witnessed transformation in our groups for years and it's just extraordinary. And it every is. time you 
every time I've watched a man tell his story in our group, mm-hmm. whether it's sexual abuse or whatever other trauma it is, I can see the effect on other men. And there's almost mm-hmm. like an unfreeze. I can see I'm an yes. unfreeze, uh, experience in other men who I can see are resonating and, and feeling themselves and their story told through this other man. There's something yes. deeply healing about that and about, yes. yeah. About on a cellular level, right? Yeah. It just really helps uh, your cells feel uh, um, more witnessed and you get that kind of co-regulated experience of being with other men who are, 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 have been in that survival mode and trying to find a place of thriving themselves. Pretty powerful. Feeling known. Feeling known. Feeling known. Yep. <laughs>